Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The views expressed on the following program are not necessarily the views of WIBA, its management sponsors or staff. Broadcasting live from Planet Madison, where everything is beyond parody. This is the Vicki McKenna Show. To be a part of the program, in Madison, call 321-1310. Statewide, call toll-free at 877-235-1310. Or email vicky at wiba.com. Now, here's Vicki McKenna. Ah, good afternoon and welcome to the program. Joel, good to see you again. Yeah, going to be seeing you more here? this week or no? Uh, Wednesday. Disappear again. No, you'll see me Wednesday. It's a flash of this bushy black beard every now and again, just for two days only. <laughs> two shows. You know they have um, they have hair dye now. That's this very very vividly colored hair dye. What's your favorite sports team? Well, the Green Bay Packers. There you I mean, go. You can get Packers green oh, and Packers gold. You could do that to that beard. I mean, my beard's pretty dark. It would be. You know, you, you, you got to tone it to well, do so it. You have to like bleach it out. And yeah, then, it's, yeah like, I think. Prime it? I, you got to prime it. Yeah, you have to prime it. <laughs> like it's but a then wall? you. Well, and then, you know, at the end, it begins to grow out of it. You'd have to eventually, um, you know, commit to. Trimming it or oh, dyeing my, it back. My roots would be, oh, I get Or it. dying okay. it back, right. So you could do that. I, I'm going to go with a hard pass on this one. You're going to just say no? Yeah. All right. Bluntly. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the program, folks. Here's what's coming up on the show. We'll talk about Jeff Sessions announcing um, actual action against sanctuary cities. We'll talk about a proposal here in the state of Wisconsin to, to ask the federal government for a waiver to allow us to rein in ever so slightly abuses in the public housing program in our state. Um, General Electric has, has used a lot of um, your money and shareholders' money to funnel contributions into all manner of left-wing organizations. We'll talk about that. The March for Scientism took place over the weekend. There will be another one this weekend. Uh, we'll get into that as well. Let's see, what else can I say coming up on the show? Lots of other stuff coming up on the show. You know, I do want to start with this, though, because it's, it's not something I want to spend a ton of time on. But the news yesterday that everybody was reacting to was the death of Erin Moran, uh, Joni Cunningham on Happy Days. And the news late afternoon yesterday had quoted Indiana officials because she died in Indiana. She was young. I mean, every, everybody now under the age of 70, I consider young. She was 56 years old and she was found dead um, after uh, somebody had, had called 911. Um, Indiana officials had released the information yesterday that they suspected a, quote, likely heroin overdose. It was going to be the cause of her death. They were wrong. 
The cause of her death, according to an autopsy report that was released about three, four hours ago, was stage four cancer. Don't know what kind of cancer, but stage four cancer. She died of cancer. Um, I don't know anything else beyond that. And every, you know, folks are like, well, why do people just have to believe the worst about people? Why do people just have to jump to conclusions? And And I'm thinking when Indiana officials tell a reporter that the likely cause of her death is a suspected heroin overdose, you're going to write the story. That's, I, I'm, I don't know why. Stop trying to figure out ways to be angry at people over stuff that is totally without any political implication whatsoever. Really? There's pl- there are going to be plenty of reasons to bash on the media coming up. Uh Uh-huh. There will be. I promise. By the end of the week, there will be another hundred reasons. But when reporters report what, you know, the medical examiner's officials tell them, that isn't them believing the worst about this childhood star that we all remember so fondly. That's them reporting what they trusted to be accurate information. Shame on the Indiana officials. But not the people who reported what the Indiana officials said. You know, it's almost like as I look at my social media sometimes, people just are trying to squeeze out a reason to be mad about stuff you have no reason to be mad over. This was just simply a mistake. Okay, move on. Now, it's very sad. Either way, whether she had died of drugs or died of stage four cancer, it's sad either way because you know we all remember that woman um, from when she was, you know, I think she was like 11 when she started the show and then maybe 15 or 17 by the time she ended it. I mean, we all grew up with that. And it was, you know, it's sad. Sad to see our, our, um, our, our entertainment icons, our cultural icons just fall away so easily, it seems. Um, but that's really, I mean, I'm looking at this post about Aaron Moran and I'm thinking, why are you mad? She, it's, it's sad. Be sad. Not, anyway, I've noticed this more and more lately. It's almost like folks are, are, are not you, the listener, unless you've done it, in which case, stop, really. Um, people just look like they're looking for a reason to rage. And there's so many obvious reasons to rage that when, when one isn't obvious, let it go. Let it go, like unicorn frappuccinos. No reason to rage on that. Why was there rage on my page? About unicorn frappuccinos? I don't know, but there was. Anyway, when we come back, I want to talk about not a reason to rage, a reason to actually be somewhat optimistic. And that is Jeff Sessions' latest move on enforcing the law, the rule of law, equally for everyone. That's next. Hey, welcome back to the program. Hmm. I think it was a conspiracy. It was a plot. It was uh, it was a plot to hide something. I think the tr- the Russians are behind it. I'm are talking about all, Aaron Moran. Are you getting all tinfoily on me here? Yeah, I'm trying to think of a way I can squeeze some kind of conspiracy out of the um, black helicopters. The black helicopter moment out of the the um, bad well, information on Aaron Moran's death. Well, there's a Scott Baio connection, and Scott Scott Baio's a Republican, a Trump go. supporter. Actually, I saw I saw Scott Baio spoke at the convention. At yes, he did, and I saw him at the New York State. 
uh, inaugural delegation party. Yes. Wow. He thought I was I was there with uh, with Sheriff Clark and his wife, Julie. And as I was um, I was leaning in and I was talking to Julie Clark and here comes Scott Bayo, basically, you know, like going to separate us like because Julie was his friend. I didn't know this. And he thought I was um, bugging her. True. (laughs) I was like, lay off, man. (laughs) I didn't drop a chachi bomb on him. No, he he was he apologized profusely because he really thought somebody was bugging his friend. And I kind of appreciated that. Because uh-huh. I thought that was kind of cool. Well, he stepped up. He's going to step up there and he's going to defend Julie. And I thought that was perfectly fine. Um, could be a conspiracy afoot somehow. I don't know. Um, I'll leave it to the speculation of the interwebs. Now, to important news of the day, and this is taking uh, campaign promises beyond beyond campaigns. Uh, and by the way, there's a couple of great pieces out. Byron York has one. A few other people have them today. Grading Trump's performance in the first hundred days versus his campaign and in in executive action, he's getting pretty much, you know, nearly every independent observer is giving him, you know, a check mark on everything he said he was going to do with executive action on legislation. It's a little bit of a slog. But one of the things he said he was going to do is reign in sanctuary cities. He was going to begin to penalize sanctuary cities that refuse to obey the law. And he also said he was going to begin to rein in the abuses of H-1B visas. Ira Melman, Federation for American Immigration Reform, is on the phone with me right now. He's not doing too poorly, at least in those executive um, actions that he has made on those two particular issues. Ira, good to have you on the show. Thanks very much. No, he he's you know, doing what he said he was going to do. And uh, I, I guess Congress is doing what they said they were going to do, which is nothing. Uh, Pretty I much. Guess why people are, are so fed up with Congress. Well, and, and so with you, and you're right. Congress is doing what Congress always does. So Congress always, you know, um, projects action in in campaign mode. But then when it comes time to govern, they they tend to not do a whole lot, and that's where we are today. But on Sessions' letter, it's not just simply, a, oh, hey, by the way, we're watching you. It's a, oh, hey, by the way, monies that were dispersed for this year, if we can, if we can take them back, we're going to do that. And, and next year and the year after and the year after that, if you do not abide by the law, you are going to lose those federal law enforcement grants and then possibly some penalties forthcoming as well. That's, that's not just tough talk. That's actually... Actually, action. That that is action, and it puts the ball squarely in the court of the local officials who maintain these sanctuary policies. You know, it's been easy for them up until now to be able to do this. Now they're facing real consequences. They could lose potentially millions of federal dollars if they persist in their sanctuary policies. And that tends not to make people who live in those communities terribly happy, uh, because either it results in diminishment of services or local governments raising taxes, neither one of which is particularly popular with, with people. Uh, then these local politicians have to turn around and explain to their constituents why they chose to protect criminal aliens rather than receive federal money for things that they need in the community. That's the real test here. Are, are they going to do this? You know, there may be a few places. You know, here in Seattle, there's talk about imposing a tax so that we can make up for the whatever uh, money is lost as a result of the federal government withholding these grants. But that's not going to play uh, in a lot of places 
uh, the rest of the country. There may be a handful of pockets around the country where people say, yeah, I'm willing to dig deeper into my pocket. But I don't think very many places fall into that category. Yeah, Madison might. Milwaukee won't. And Milwaukee stands to lose millions of dollars in federal assistance. We are under levy limits in the state of Wisconsin, so any of those millions of dollars lost are not going to be recouped simply by raising property taxes. It will necessarily have to come at the expense of something else. Maybe it's law enforcement. Maybe it's, you know, it's road maintenance. Maybe it's other types of programs people like. Uh, or, but if they actually try to propose, and I would encourage Dane County to do this, if they try to propose a special tax to pay for sanctuary policies, You know, good luck to you, I guess. Good luck to you, because maybe that's finally going to be what dislodges some of the uh, the machine politicians from their positions of power. Well, you know... It probably would. I, I, I suspect people in Dane County don't particularly like giving more money to the government, especially not uh, so that the government, uh, the local government, can protect people who are in the country illegally. It'd have to be a referendum. Other- it would have to be a referendum, so we would find out if they actually would put this on the ballot. Put it on the ballot and ask. <laughs> well, let's see. You know, as I said, I, I live in Seattle, and I, you know, knowing what I know about Seattle, it, it would actually pass. I, I'd be spending more money. Uh, more money would be coming out of my pocket. Yeah, I know, and I, I think the same. It probably actually would pass in Madison, but it would not pass in Milwaukee. It would be rejected roundly in Milwaukee, even though that's the biggest sanctuary uh, city. And that's that's actually the one on the list. Madison is is worried that it's going to lose some, some law enforcement dollars here, but it's not nearly in his overt violation. Uh, Milwaukee is going to be hurt if they want to continue to, you know, to marry themselves to the left-wing open borders crowd. Um, but, the, but again... So here's Session with a pretty easy thing he can do. The, and, and by the way, if you take a look at the letter, citing the law, local officials don't have the authority to do this, even if they did decide to go. And Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Raise taxes. Then the federal government still has penalties it can apply, even if the local communities want to go and, and spend money on this stuff, um, you know, irrespective of, of federal matching dollars for law enforcement. There's, the, the law is abundantly clear. It's not legal to do this. And if the Justice Department has decided that it, it wants to, uh, you know, pursue penalties rather than reductions, it can do that. Uh, the, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know that's the the power of the federal government. You know they they 
have money that uh, local governments need. They have, you know, the, when you're faced with a federal lawsuit, uh, it's and that's no what it would be. Matter just ask states like Arizona that had to face it under the Obama administration. And, and by the way, I mean Milwaukee is on the list of the first nine letters that were sent out by the Justice Department. Uh, you know, they got plenty of printers over there at the Justice Department. I expect there will be more. Uh, you know, there are some 300 sanctuary jurisdictions around the country. Uh, I, I suspect that fairly soon most of them will be receiving letters from the Justice Department. And it would in, in the sanctuary policies, if they continue beyond um, this initial uh, reduction of, of federal matching dollars, it would result in a lawsuit. And the, the, again, the law is abundantly clear. The municipality would lose. It would lose. It might not lose in, in your first court. Uh, you know, in your first in your first you know attempt at the circuit, but eventually it would lose, and so that's the um, that's the risk that the uh, the cities have to take because again, legal fees that are going to be paid for by cities are paid for by taxpayers, and those taxpayers paying legal fees that will have to necessarily come from someplace else. Let me ask about H one B visas, Ira, because while Trump at at uh, Snap on Tools addressed the problem of H-1B visas, there's not an enormous amount he can do in an executive capacity to stop the, um, you know, the, the, the problem wholesale. The abuses are going to continue, by the way. They are, they are um, you know, there's examples of them at multiple major Wisconsin companies. Well, th- these are all legal, by the way. I mean, the, the loopholes were baked into the legislation when Congress passed it back sometime in the early 1990s. Uh, you know, they probably did it with the help of a lot of business lobbyists who made sure that those loopholes were in there. It is up to Congress to close those loopholes. Uh, you know, the intent of the law, at least theoretically, was to allow American companies access to people who had unique skills uh, that couldn't be easily replicated here in this country. And what it has turned into is a program under which companies legally displace American workers uh, or bypass American workers who have very comparable skills to the workers that they want to bring in. And, you know, they're getting away with it because it is perfectly legal to do so. That is only Congress can fix that. You know, the president can make some modifications uh, to make it less bad for American workers. But it really is up to Congress to, to fix it. And, you know, what he can do mentioned earlier, Congress doesn't do much. Right. What he can do is he can say, you know, the expansion that was that took place under the Obama administration for the number of visas available. He could roll back that expansion. He could task. Um, the federal government with monitoring it more clearly and cl- more closely. Um, you know, there are penalties certainly that could be issued if, in fact, is obviously um, being used to displace American workers, because there are some um, companies that have used this and, and, it, and it doesn't seem legal on its face. So you're thinking about Disney fired 10,000 people, had those 10,000 people train their H-1B visa recipient replacements um, for, you know, 35 percent less in salary. That seems pretty much much overt in, in overt violation of the rule on its face. Well, no, no I mean, it, it doesn't say anything that they have to uh, prefer American workers to guest workers. And that's the problem, is that the law was riddled with loopholes to begin with, and now it needs to be fixed. And look, I mean, you know, even 60 Minutes is doing exposés on this. Uh, that's how widespread and overt it has become. Uh, and, you know, that they're getting away with it. So it's Congress that has to sit down and say, look, you know, the, the law was flawed. 
the intent of the program, at least theoretically, as I said, was to provide Disney with some rare talent that they just simply can't find anyplace else. But it wasn't intended to allow them to say to their American workforce, by the way, you guys have two weeks' notice, and if you want a severance package, you're going to train the, the people who are replacing you. Uh, and the other abuse that has occurred, this has turned into a cash cow for labor placement companies, most of them based in India. They snap up all the available visas. Then they farm out these workers to companies like Microsoft or Disney. They get, you know, they get part of these workers' salaries. Uh, so, you know, we, we've created a whole industry that profits off of this at the expense of the American public. At the expense of high-wage-earning high American public, too, uh, and, the, and the potential for decent jobs out there to help some of these people pay off their student loans. Good to have you on the program, Ira. Thanks very much for jumping on the show today. Anytime. Thanks. Federation for American Immigration Reforms, Ira Melman. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the program. So I normally start the show out with the random question. Um, is it like, um, is it pollen explosion time? Can you do me a favor, Joel, and check what the pollen looks like? I think I've developed late stage hay fever. I will, uh, I'll check, but I can tell you this. Uh, all I've done is, to my wife, I've sneezed. Okay. Yeah. I've been sneezing and itching. Does Does it also cause... Like skin itching? I, I think for some people it probably. Oh my does. gosh, I'm not I've a big been allergy I got guy, but watery eyes. I'm my hands itch. Every, I mean, I haven't like used any weird products. Anyway, all right, you um you armchair WebMD cyberchondriacs in my listening audience, email me about this if you know of these things, and if um, you know maybe it is possible to catch you know like like. Middle age hay fever or something like that. It is uh, today and tomorrow. It is under the red category. Oh, it's red pollen. Yeah, it's bad. red alert. It's bad. Dun dun dun. Defcon should... one. It's it's pollen. Defcon one. Yep. Okay. Good to know. Maybe that's why I'm 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 scratching my skin raw and sneezing like a mad person. Well, there we go. Anyway, by Wednesday you'll be okay though. I can't wait. Uh, just just a few more days of this misery. All right, Justin Danhoff is standing by from the Free Enterprise, uh, the Free Enterprise Project at the National Center for Public Policy Research. Um, we've had Justin on before, and always talking about the Free Enterprise Project shareholder activism, which actually has paid some dividends. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but the latest is the General Electric shareholders meeting on April twenty sixth. So that's two days from now, Justin. Correct. That's correct, Vicky. And what are you seeking to to do at the shareholders' meeting um, in terms of, I guess, exposing the, sh- the shareholders to new information? Yeah, sure. So, Well, first of all, for your you know, hay fever, Vicky, I, I recommend something that starts in at least 20 minutes out here on the East Coast, and that's called the half hour. <laughs> I love most, him! Most ailments. <laughs> you know what? I'm for that. Good. I'm glad I had go. you on the program, Justin. Thank you. Dr. <laughs> Danhoff, good to have you. <laughs> so, on the public policy front, though, so what, we, what we've done here um, is we filed a shareholder resolution that's actually going to be voted on at the General Electric shareholder meeting that really kind of exposes some of the extremist groups that General Electric has been funding through its charitable operations. I think that um, a lot of times you hear from the far-left liberal investment crowd clamoring over transparency, transparency in corporate political activity, and really what they're actually looking for is transparency involved 
with corporations donating to anybody with an R next to their name or any sort of conservative outfit. But a lot of folks don't know that much of what corporate America does in the philanthropic world really funds some of the most dramatically left-wing organizations that exist. And so we just highlighted a couple in our proposal, and basically our proposal asked GE for some very, very simple things. When you make a donation to Group X, um, A, can you tell us why? And, you know, what benefit to the company or society at large is created by the donation? Because, of course, that's the point of charity, right? And, it's, you know, it's a very simple request. If you're going to use shareholder money, people invest their money in General Electric, and General Electric is in turn then going to donate it to a charity, which, by the way, folks can just donate to charities directly if they want. They don't need to invest in a corporation and then have the corporation then go give money to uh, controversial charities. Basically, you know, what, what's the purpose behind it? It's a very simple ask. And we highlight three groups that I think a lot of folks would be kind of shocked to know that corporate America is helping to back. And they are Planned Parenthood, the Clinton Foundation, and a group called the Center for American Progress. All three backed by General Electric investor money. Wow. And so that's that's what our proposal gets to the height of, is why in the world, in such a highly politicized environment that we live in, would General Electric be backing the largest or abortion provider in America? Uh, the Clinton Foundation, which is under multiple sets of FBI investigations um, regarding pay for potential pay-for-play situations, and the Center for American Progress, which was, of course, run for many years by John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's chief of staff when she ran for president. You have named the three, probably the three lightning rod uh, charities, if you can call them that, on you know in this country. Planned Parenthood, the Clinton Foundation, and Center for American Progress? Was GE shareholders supposed to be simply under or, or underwriting the, you know, the entire uh, political donation process for Hillary Clinton's attempt to become president? Yeah, that's exactly what we want to know, right? And we've asked uh, General Electric this before, specifically regarding the Clinton Foundation, and we didn't get answers. And that's why we've followed up with the proposal, because, again... What is the purpose of your charitable donation, and does it outweigh the risks? And now that we are shining light on these very controversial organizations that GE is involved in, we're hoping to increase that risk balance part of the equation, right? Because if they can donate and no one talks about it, then, of course, the benefit outweighs the risk because it advances the liberal agenda of some of the board and some of the executive teams at General Electric. But if we shine light on it and conservative investors, free market investors, pro-life investors stand up and say, hey, wait a minute, that's not what I thought I was investing in, then we can try and, re- you know, rebalance out the equation. And that's, that's, that's part of what we're doing here at the meeting. Yeah, so this is, listen, tell us why. You thought the the hyper partisan, hyper hyper partisan hit squad at Center for American Progress was worthy of a charitable contribution from General Electric. This isn't. I mean, if if General Electric Electric had helped to underwrite the American Legislative Exchange Council, then the left would have been losing their mind. And mind you, all Alec does is is a bunch of legislators get together and they come up with model legislation, and lots of companies fund Alec, and they also fund the national um, 
Uh, now I can't think of the, li- the liberal version of ALEC. There's a, there's a NCSL, the liberal version. They'll, they'll fund both groups, you know, let state legislators get together. When, when it's ALEC, the, you know, they take to Twitter, they create pressure. Um, but here's General Electric. I mean, Center for American Progress is a hit squad. It's a political hit squad. And it's getting underwritten by one of the most, one of the wealthiest, you know, multinationals on the planet. Yeah, that's right. And so that, that's part of what we're trying to do with the, this proposal, too. And we submitted a similar proposal to the Apple Corporation earlier this year. Um, is because of that fact that you just point out. Liberal investors file hundreds of these resolutions every single year, and they attack just who you mentioned, the American Legislative Exchange Council. To what effect? Over 100 corporations, because of proposals like that, dropped their membership in ALEC. Because... Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The pressure actually works um, when, when, when it's applied in this equation. And so... They, they, not only do they go after Alex, believe me, the Chamber of Commerce, they're on, they're, they're on the list, the National Association of Manufacturers um, and, and, and the like, and they all get attacked year after year after year after year through this resolution process. So part of what we're doing is saying, hey, guess what? Two can play at that game. Because if, if, if you liberals who are submitting these proposals really want to know about transparency, well, we'll peel back a few layers of the onion ourselves. And we'll show that groups are donating to Greenpeace. They're donating to the Sierra Club. As you said, the Center for American Progress, you cannot get more radical than the Center for American Progress. If folks don't know much about them, we actually have a profile on our website. Uh, come to nationalcenter.org and you can find it. But, but this group, again, was run by John Podesta with very close ties to the Obama administration, wrote the blueprint for the Obama administration. You can actually go to their website and still read the blueprint. It's up there today for how they were going to expand executive power. And now it's kind of comical because President Trump is now in office and using some of that same executive power that President Obama expanded beyond what any president had ever done in the modern era. And General Electric, get this, you're going to love it, they have lodged complaints about President Trump and his use of executive power. But they're the ones that underwrote the Center for American Progress which wrote the playbook with shareholder money. 
expand the executive branch. Yeah, this wasn't Jeff Immelt cutting cutting a, a personal check. This was using shareholder money to make these contributions on behalf of the company itself. Again, Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood, which dumped huge amounts of money into Hillary Clinton's election campaign. Um, with the other one you had mentioned was oh the Clinton Foundation, which is you had pointed out accurately is under investigation for fraud. Uh, and and but you know what? Here's the thing. You don't you're out there, Justin. How many others are out there doing conservative or free market shareholder activism? Imagine if we had somebody, you know, tasked in a group in every single state that could identify when the shareholder meetings were going to come up and find out. Because here's what you and I talked about before. If, if somebody's got shares in GE, they can call Justin and say, I want Justin to speak on behalf of me as a shareholder. Um, you can do that. You can speak as their proxy. You can represent people. That's what, I mean, if can you imagine if they're just a little bit? of effort were put into, you know, into these operations so that conservatives could actually know some of the companies they're invested in, what their political leanings are. That'd be amazing. Oh, yeah. Um, Not just on this front of, you know, going after who corporations are involved with, but the whole sphere of shareholder activism is 99.9% liberal going after corporate America, while conservatives don't realize the danger that, you know, we are under from corporate America undermining liberty and undermining value. And so, you know, that's, that's the big, the big pitching point that I try and, you know, remind folks of. You know, President Obama, he didn't even know what was in Obamacare because corporations, unions, Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid were writing it. And, and, you know, those corporations are still around, but President Obama's out of office. When it comes to some of these very stringent environmental regulations, they're actually written by the bigger businesses to squash their smaller competitors who can't afford to reach that regulatory hurdle. And so, you know, we need to realize as conservatives that because a company is out there making a profit doesn't make them a conservative engine, a, a bastion of free market ideals. Very often, it, it, once a company reaches a certain size, they, they try and team up with government to crowd out new competitors in their marketplace and it's the complete opposite of free market it's crony statism you know what and, and that, that's, that's where, a good point because it, we've also as conservatives allowed the media to present this this nonsense and it is nonsense if you actually take a look at the top 100 contributors uh to federal elections you will find that there are you know the first 20 uh which include an enormous number of corporations are donating almost exclusively to liberal causes that we, we've allowed the media to paint this picture that oh the Republicans are the party of big business. The businesses, you know, backing the Republicans. If you take a look at some of the largest businesses in America and on the planet, they're not backing conservative free market candidates. They're backing anybody who is willing to continue the crony, you know, lobbyist-based relationship with government that these companies have, and that's usually the liberals. Well, that's right. And I think that, you know, conservatives do a good job on half of the circle, right? When what what I call what goes on here, I live in Arlington, Virginia, right across the river. I stare at D.C. and try not to vomit most days. But um, what I see is almost every Fortune 500 company with a presence. I see a lot of federal buildings, but more and more I'm seeing corporate influence. And what it is is when big business and big government grow, they generally are growing together. And when I say that, you know, it kind of like think of a symbiotic yin and yang circle growing, you know, growing in this disgusting blob. Well, 
the conservatives do a very good job of attacking that government side of the circle. We 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 realize the bloat. We realize things like the EPA and the Department of Education, the EEOC. There's redundancies on top of redundancies on top of inefficiencies, and we do a good job of attacking that. But we ignore the other half of the circle that is working hand in hand. And again, I point out that politicians come and go, but these corporations are still there. And so that's why we've chosen at the Free Enterprise Project to focus on the other half of the circle. Um, also, because unlike politicians, which are just generally bought and paid off, as, as evidenced by all of these corporations that left the American Legislative Exchange Council just by getting a shareholder proposal, corporations are sometimes much more amenable to pressure campaigns because they're all about image, right? And so if enough pressure has come to board down on General Electric, for example, because enough pro-life Americans say, hey, what in the world are you giving all of our, you know, all of this money to Planned Parenthood for? Well, we, there, there could be some cause and effect there. And so that's why we choose to operate on that side of the sphere. And as, as you point out, hey, anybody out there listening, take a look at your, you know, retirement fund. I bet you you own plenty of shares and and if you don't want to go to a you know, certain meeting, but you know that this company is being a bad actor, track us down at nationalcenter.org, reach yeah. us on Facebook or Twitter, and let me know about it. And I'll see if it's something that we can take on for you. Exactly. And that's, I wish there were, I wish we could clone you in this, in this idea. Um, and it's just, you know, one of the, one of the many ways you can actually go about unwinding um, this, as you say, that other half of the circle there. You've had some successes, too. I mean, the, the idea, this isn't all just falling on deaf ears. When the shareholders are presented with this information, the shareholders demand action. And so that's the idea here is to have those shareholders say, hey, yeah, how come we are funding a bunch of left-wing radicals who despise America and, free, and the free market itself? Um, Justin, thanks very much for being on the program today, as always. Thanks, Vicki. Have a great day. Justin Danoff from the National Center for Public Policy Research. Also, um, the Free Enterprise Project. That is under the umbrella of the National Center. Nationalcenter.org for more information. And right at the top of the page, you can click on Free Enterprise Project and read all of the different press releases and reports that have been posted up there in the last couple of years. We'll be right back. The views expressed on the following program are not necessarily the views of WIBA, its management sponsors or staff. Broadcasting live from Planet Madison, where everything is beyond parody. This is the Vicki McKenna Show. To be a part of the program, in Madison, call 321-1310. Statewide, call toll-free at 877-235-1310. Or email vicki at wiba.com. Now, here's Vicki McKenna. program this just in duke university researchers have determined now for the umpteenth time that fracking does not contaminate groundwater just you know put it on the pile all of the studies that say fracking doesn't contaminate groundwater and let's put that next to the non-existent pile of all of the studies that says it does uh, Mark Morano from Climate Depot is going to join me to talk about the March for Science. Um, conveniently missing from the March for Science was science. So we'll talk about that coming up on the program. Before we get into that, though, the left is um, having a bit of a conniption today. 
in Wisconsin over a proposal, a modest proposal from a Republican member of the Assembly to ask you need a piece of legislation to do this, to ask the federal government for a waiver on Section 8 housing and and subsidized housing in Wisconsin. You can't put conditions on the receipt of housing subsidies or Section 8 vouchers without authority from the federal government to do that. So this is a piece of legislation that says we are we would like to ask the federal government, the state of Wisconsin, for a waiver to allow us to put new conditions on the receipt of of housing assistance in the form of either um, public, you know, living in a public housing unit or getting a Section 8 voucher or some type of voucher. All they say, all, all the legislation is asking for is the authority to begin looking at putting a modest work or, or workplace training requirement on the receipt of housing assistance. And the left is practically beside themselves because it just makes so much sense. So this proposal would say to the federal government, we, the state of Wisconsin, want to work on a proposal, a piece of legislation that would impose work penalty or rather work requirements for housing assistance for able-bodied people without kids. Able-bodied people without kids. Raise your hand. Hey, progressives, you you tell me. Do you think able-bodied people without kids ought to be working? What do you think? You think so? Yeah, nod your head. It's okay to nod your head because this is one of those things that 85 to 90% of America agrees on. And the only ones who don't are people who are so completely committed to the destruction of the United States that they would ignore common sense like this. Able-bodied adults without children would be required to work. Now, the, the, the details of the work requirement haven't been fleshed out, and the details of the comma or job training haven't been fleshed out. I would, by the way, I'd tweak that to eliminate the whole job training because government-funded job training does nothing. Just put the work requirement on it. And put the work requirement on it for all able-bodied people. Not just able-bodied adults without kids. If you are able-bodied, period. In the state of Wisconsin, if you're able-bodied with kids, we have child shares. Lots and lots of people use child care assistance funded by tax dollars who aren't actually working. So able-bodied people, I think, should be the, the, the category here. But right now, it's able-bodied people without kids. And the left is saying, well, you can't do that. Why not? Do you know, in the state of Wisconsin, and Glenn Grothman's going to be on my program tomorrow to talk more about this. In the state of Wisconsin, if you qualify for all the welfare benefits, you can bring in a value of benefits in excess of $28,000. That includes if you get housing assistance, Medicaid, child shares, uh, food shares, and the earned income tax credit. In excess of $28,000 a year in value. Shouldn't you work for that? If you're not disabled, if you're not elderly and incapable of working, don't you think you should... 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Work for that? This one proposal has got the left figuring out ways to try to stymie. The legislation, because it just makes so much common sense. Well, what are you going to do about the programs? How are you going to help people? This does help people. This helps people by taking existing housing units that are occupied by folks who don't work, who are paying nothing for their housing and getting additional welfare benefits on top of it. But they are capable of working. They just choose not to work. It takes those people... And it moves them out of those housing units unless they get a job, which, of course, frees up those housing units. There's a waiting list in Wisconsin a mile long for all of these units for people who actually might need them for real. The left is right now trying to figure out ways to make the Republicans look like monsters for simply proposing a piece of legislation that asks the federal government for a waiver so that it can set rules governing whether able-bodied people in those welfare houses, those using those welfare vouchers, can be required to actually go earn a living. Be right back. All righty, welcome back to the program. So, yeah, the latest on fracking, it doesn't contaminate groundwater. This is from Duke University researchers. Just put it on the giant pile of research that says fracking doesn't contaminate groundwater. And again, put that giant pile of research next to the to the non-existent pile of research that says fracking does contaminate groundwater. Um, and then let's make a determination on the future of hydraulic fracturing based on that, shall we? Um, that's, by the way, the Daily Caller today. I've also posted it up on my blog if you'd like to go see it. Um, but let's talk about the March for Science. The one thing missing from the March for Science, Mark Morano from Climate Depot, was what? I would say science was actually missing from that march. But you were there at the big one. So tell me about it. Good to have you back on the show. Thanks a lot, Vicky. I can say I was there. It's like being at the first Earth Day or something. <laughs> or being at the Martin Luther King. No, that was a legit but Martin Luther King. But this, is, this was a rally, and it, it struck me about halfway through. It was a miserable, cold, rainy day in Washington. And it wasn't even like predominantly necessarily focused on climate. It was all focused on funding. I mean, it just seemed like that's what this was. And they even had the AFL-CIO, the unionized scientists, organized, doing press releases. This was about money. They're afraid that Trump's going to come in and cut budgets, and it's going to just disrupt their gravy chain on a whole host of different issues. And what's fascinating about that is Obama expanded so much of this money and green energy and grants to all their agenda Eight years unfettered, and all of a sudden they're acting like one or two years of Trump budget cuts, trying to get through a GOP Congress that probably won't even amount to much. To be honest, when you when you average it out, it's going to be the end of the world, and they're destroying the planet. 
But this was unionized scientists wanting unfettered access Hold to it. taxpayer funding. And that's really what – if you disagree with it, you were killing the earth. Mark. You were a denier. Explain yes. unionized scientists to me. Well, it was a, it's a release. The, the AFL-CIO uh, set They represent this, scientists? Yeah, they have scientist members, apparently. I, it was news to me at this rally. I didn't – unionized scientists march in protest of attacks on science in jobs, opposed oh. budget cuts. This is the AFL-CIO release. It's, on my, it's in my report on, on the Climate Depot. And it, it calls it an attack on our civil society. Uh, I'm just saying budget cuts are beginning of the attack. They're proposing a, a cut in funding. So it's all about that. It's the, they're representing government union scientists. I can't even, I, I, you know, it's the first time I've heard it put that way, and I'm sure people probably aren't happy that they put it that way because it sounds like just another, it's, they're basically just another special interest group upset that they're not getting unfettered access. Keep in mind, this is one of the most funded issues, especially when it comes to climate. And trust me, Donald Trump can't come in and alter all the... It's not like he's coming in and going after medical research or everything else. They're just there. This was a bunch of fears. It's about ideology, and it's about keeping the funding going. And then the climate stuff they had, they had some really wacky, silly stuff, like Republicans have made climate change worse, Uh, God hates climate deniers, uh, and and then they just had a whole bunch of stuff about polar bears and storms and everything's allegedly getting worse, and we need EPA regulations to make them better, which, again, this was a march for superstition. If you actually believe U.N. treaties and EPA regulations can alter the climate and you know, reduce temperatures and change the path of storms, that's what's frightening about this. Holy mackerel. So you had nobody actually talking about to, about science and research. It was just all about money. Give us money. Give us taxpayer money. We want that gravy train to keep and coming. And if you don't, we're going to compare you to Hitler. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that was the other science. Even Hitler was not a climate denier, which I'm not even sure what that means. But in fact, you know, if you go back, I actually did a series of reports on this. Hitler... In the 1940s, there was a professor who said that the rise of Mussolini and Hitler was due to warming at that time. Remember, in the 1920s and 30s up to the, about mid-40s, we had a warm spell, and the Arctic was melting, all kinds of scare Greenland, there was all kinds of scares going on. They said that warm weather makes people more docile and thus easily led by authoritarian figures. This was the theory. Interestingly enough, the day that von Stauffenberg, who tried to do the assassination attempt on Hitler, uh, tried to do it. They had to move the original location because of the intense heat to another location. <laughs> Thus, they got that big, heavy table, which neutered the bomb that would have killed Adolf Hitler. So global warming created Adolf Hitler. Oh, the bomb, okay. The, and global, that, that's created him by making us more warm weather, made us docile, and then they accepted him. And then the hot weather made them move the conference room, which then gave him that big, heavy table uh, to protect him from the bomb. And it saved his life. Now we're saying that even Hitler wasn't a climate denier. So uh, it's hard to keep straight. It really is. Let's talk about this new this new study um, that challenges the labeling of CO2 is as a pollutant, which actually, you know, suggests strongly suggests that the data that was used to generate the claims in the court uh, by the EPA that CO2 is a pollutant that needs to be regulated under the Clean Air Act um, is was phony data was bad data. Um, so what's going on with this and what is what is the potential for this particular study in terms of the endangerment finding? Well, what they're doing, it's, there, there's been a petition and there may be several petitions, but this is in conjunction with a petition filed uh, 
by these scientists with the EPA uh, asking them to reconsider that carbon dioxide is a dangerous pollutant. So along with this petition, they've now done this study, and it actually includes climatologist Dr. John Christie, meteorologist Joe DeLeo. Uh, these are seasoned researchers uh, who have been at this for years, and they just did this. They just released the study today. They get, sent it to their peers for review. And what this basically is going after is saying there is no fingerprint of global warming. And they're going through all the temperature data. They're saying that they cannot find the evidence for it. It's not there. When you strip away the models, in fact, there's a study in the Associated Press today about uh, the likelihood that any given weather event has the fingerprint of, of CO2 global warming. Seth Borenstein of AP is hyping this, but it's all just statistical nonsense because extreme weather, not only is it not getting worse, it's improving. So the idea that you're going around calculating odds based on models and silliness, I mean, they can do that all day, but this is... Very hard science, and this is the beginning. This kind of work and studies will allow, eventually, Scott Pruitt to take on the endangerment finding. So that's the point, right? Because otherwise yeah. you can challenge it in court. But Pruitt can also, and the EPA can challenge the endangerment finding from the EPA level, because the EPA doesn't have to use CO2 as a pollutant and regulate it as such under the Clean Air Act if, in fact, it decides, based on new evidence, it's not a danger. Right, but this is where I think we talked about this last time. It's whether Trump administration will be a blip or do permanent uh, reshuffling in Washington. And if they, if the current EPA administrator just says, "Ah, you know, we're not going to view that as a, as a, we're not going to view CO two as a pollutant. We're going to just assume it's, you know, we're going to assume it's a trace essential natural gas in the atmosphere." It doesn't mean the next president, a president. Uh, Joe Biden or someone in their EPA, they can just come back in and resurrect it. The way you kill it dead, if that's good English, is you have to get the courts to kill it, and you got to deauthorize, delegitimize it. And that's why this study and, and these petitions now are so important. Because, yeah, you can always just pause and get out of it now. Same with the U.N. treaty. We can always just say we're not going to adhere to it. The problem is we want to make it so the next president can't just get us back into this stuff very simply. So you think eventually the study and then hopefully additional studies to come ultimately do find their way in court so that a new court says you don't have the authority to look at CO2 as a pollutant. Um, we're taking exactly. that away but, uh, from you because the evidence suggests otherwise. Yes. You know, in defense of the, our current EPA chief, there have been many climate skeptics, my fellow colleagues criticizing him openly already, saying, they're not going after endangerment. This is a big mistake. I've talked to sources inside. I'll, I'll play the mainstream media reporter. I've talked to my secret sources, and they're telling me that they, they don't. They see it as a losing game right now, and I tend to agree because the courts ultimately would decide it. And right now, unless you know we get another Supreme Court pick, I don't know that we would win another battle. You know, even if you present more evidence, because I think something like climate change isn't really decided on scientific evidence. It's decided on uh, ideology and, uh, and, and pressure in many instances. So it, Supreme Court justices are, are subject to that. So I would say you want to time it so that it, goes, it may, makes its way back to the Supreme Court when you have a new justice appointed by Donald Trump. Uh, and that's the best hope. Absent that, I think people can turn blue in the face and try every tactic in the world. But I'm I just afraid they're likely to lose in the court. Let, let, me ask, let me ask this totally unrelated. What the heck happened with Bill Nye, the science guy and a climatologist? Was his name um, Dr. Harper? How did this go Dr. down? Dr. Will Happer. Yeah, they were on CNN debating on Saturday morning right before the march. And Will Happer was you know, making excellent points about CO2 uh, uh, famine and how 
this is uh, just nonsense and the U.N. climate treaty makes no sense. And Bill Nye basically said he should be ashamed of himself and spent a lot of his time chastising CNN for even inviting this guy on the air. Now, first of all, would it, take yourself out of the climate debate. Will Happer was actually it, it had meetings with Donald Trump, has advised him on science, and may be the next science czar replacing John Holdren. He's one of two candidates, the leading contender for that. So just on that level, he's a legitimate CNN guest. But Bill Nye, because Will Happer is a climate skeptic who's actually testified to Congress that we're currently in a CO2 famine, geologically speaking, Bill Nye blew a gasket that CNN would dare have but him Bill, on but, the but, air. But Happer, is, a, is, a, is he a climatologist? Happer has done hundreds of peer-reviewed paper in similar related work and studied climate issues. I don't know if he's Bill Nye is, is, is Bill Nye's education. His educational background is mechanical engineering. He's not even yes. he's not even a meteorologist, let alone a, a climatologist. Yes, in fact, uh, Bill Nye. If you, I just retweeted that he has his show called Bill Nye Saves the World on Netflix. He is like a stand-up comic in that he had you know wacky stuff. If you go to my Twitter account, you can find some of it. I don't even want to repeat some of the stuff on the air, but. Bill Nye is an entertainer, and many of the climate, his fellow climate activists are upset that he was the face of this, not just because he was a white male, uh, but because uh, they just didn't think that he had the scientific mojo to do it. And yeah, <laughs> he's got the gall to go ahead and criticize CNN. Will Happer has literally over 200 peer-reviewed scientific papers in disciplines related to climate. He's been studying climate for decades. It's a, it's a you know, in the, in the words of uh, uh, the old, he, he can't even hold a, a candle to uh, Will Happer, but that's what makes it so humorous when he says he right. shouldn't even legitimize him. ClimateDepot.com is where you can find the latest dispatch. And Mark, you're going to be at the one next week? I hear there's a second one next weekend. yes. Oh. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Yeah, I'm going to be at the <laughs> second Saturday in a row. I'm not happy about this. Uh, but yeah, I'll be there this Saturday. You're in your element. Nobody does it as good element, as you. This is, this is like overload. They can right. space these out. I don't mm. know why they would do a week of, you know, that's ridiculous. Well, well I'm, let me thank you in advance. Good to have you on the program. <laughs> Thanks for being on the show. All right. Thank you, Vicky. We'll take a quick break here. ClimateDepot.com if you want to see the latest. There's the link to the Bill Nye video. I couldn't get through it because I couldn't under... I don't know. I just... I felt like I'd have to kill myself after I watched the video. The, um... Something like sex up my junk or something like... I. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Um, anyway, but the, the the March for Science, all the pictures are there. There's video. I think there's video of Dr. Happer squaring off against Bill Nye on CNN. All of the crazy comparisons, you know, between anybody who disagrees with climate alarmism and Hitler. All of that's there at ClimateDepot.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the program. So it looks like the Obamacare repeal isn't dead at all. Um, I just spoke today with Glenn Grothman, who said that there was a meeting 
I believe, last Thursday with members of the House. They're certainly not in agreement, he said, but he anticipates in the next couple of weeks um, there could be a piece of legislation that gets to the repeal of Obamacare. We're not sure what it's going to look like, though. So over the weekend was an interview with Congressman Bratt, who suggested that, yes, indeed, there is a there is some kind of deal in the works and that it's going to look substantially similar to the bill that just um, failed, uh, failed to be brought for a vote. But with amendments, there, there wasn't a lot of meat to what he said, although his optimism was a little infectious. And so for this, because he watches it more closely than I do, Merrill Matthews from Institute for Policy Innovation is on the phone with me. Does it look like, Merrill, to you, the same thing that we talked about last time, which is which is keeping the bill mostly the same, but then what, coughing up an option for states to maybe, you know, if they want to participate in high-risk pools? That's essentially it, uh, Vicki. What they've done is they said we're maintaining the uh, guaranteed issue provision requiring uh, insurers to accept anybody. That's in the individual market. Now, we're not talking about group insurance. Uh, Keep the coverage for uh, dependents on their parents' plans to age 26. Um, You can't charge more for a preexisting condition. Uh, so you and the essential health benefits, all of those things are still in there. What they're doing is they're saying we're going to give the states a limited waiver option, so that states could come up and say we want if states say want to make the case we can we think we can lower health insurance premiums, increase access to insurance, keep roughly the same people or actually more people insured if we make some changes to the essential health benefits to a few other things. Uh, they would have the ability to, with these limited uh, state waivers to tinker with the system some. And what we don't know from this, since it's not legislative language, is would HHS have a lot of flexibility to give the states the waivers? Would they not have much flexibility? So you could, you could continue What's the incentive? doing really well and others not doing very well what, at all. What would the incentive be for the states to seek out these limited waivers? Well, if the state thinks it's going to be able to do a better job, and I suspect a lot of, of red-leaning states might uh, feel that way, they could apply for the waivers, and let's just say there's a pretty fle- pretty flexible government that's going to let them do that. You might create some fairly viable uh, uh, networks of uh, health insurers in those states. Now, the, the irony here is the person leading this, Tom MacArthur, a Republican from New Jersey, head of the moderate group, New Jersey destroyed their health insurance market uh, back about 1993 by by keeping exactly these provisions in there. So uh, it's interesting that he he's essentially saying we destroyed our market in my state, and I want to make sure that every state has the chance to destroy its market. But as you point out, some Freedom Caucus members are saying, you know, this might get us close because we think a lot of states would apply for the waivers. And if there's some freedom with the waivers, maybe you have a viable market out there. I would think that you'd want to incentivize the waivers as well. Is there still dollars to set up high-risk insurance pools in the states that would be applying for the waivers? Right. The the language that we saw coming out Thursday was just an outline, so nobody's seen the legislative language yet. But it was going to make op- it was going to open up the possibility for high risk pools, as I understand it, at the state level, either like those invisible high risk pools that Maine and Alaska did, or like the traditional high risk pool um, that Wisconsin did. And I noticed uh, over the weekend that Texas is looking at uh, reestablishing its 
old high-risk pool, bring it back up to speed again. So it would have to get this started. And all the states that had the high-risk pools, if they wanted to, to go back to that, they would have to start up those because 35 states had high-risk pools, and those have all shut down now. So there's a, there's a startup process, but there's also this other high-risk pool option. How does the invisible high-risk pool work? Because this is something that that's not what we had in Wisconsin. We had a very, sell, uh, a very well-functioning high-risk pool, but it wasn't invisible. People did pay more with pre-existing conditions. You're telling me that this legislation would likely prohibit companies from charging people more with pre-existing conditions. Um, I'm, I'm trying to understand how this is going to, you know, work to actually create some vigor in that marketplace to make sure that people, you know, that, that insurance companies are able to price their products appropriately. The way the two states, and these are two small states, Alaska and Maine, did this was that they identified what they thought were the major cost um, uh, drivers in the healthcare system. Those people with uh, with with uh, congenital heart failure and other things that were driving the cost, and they put them in what's called an invisible high risk pool. Nothing happened. They they saw nothing change. It's just they they were segmented in some way, and then the state funneled money to the health insurers uh, through the back door to basically offset the cost of those. And so that they kept the prices. How is this different than the risk corridor? Driving it up. How is that different than the risk corridor provision in Obamacare? Oh, it's not much different at all. <laughs> uh, you, you could argue it's some, if it's not similar, you could argue it's identical. So even though Republicans had said we want we don't want any health insurer bailout, uh, this is called sort of a backdoor bailout to that. But it's like I said, it's called an invisible high risk pool, and it was always intended. And, and this was true in the, under, under the Obama plan, uh, plan. They had three ways that they were funneling money to insurance companies to help uh, stabilize the market and keep premiums down. All right, so they cannot come up with a better way to do this. They can't just simply model Wisconsin and say, here's what you're going to do. You're going to create your own high-risk pool, states. You're going to figure this out. You know, make, don't, you know, don't make the mistake of, of pricing people with pre-existing conditions out of coverage, um, but we're not going to do it in a way that essentially allows the subsidizing of insurance companies in exactly the same way that caused problems in Obamacare in the first place. Because that, I mean, I don't, I, I'm, again, you know, we're left asking the question, how is this different? How is this so fundamentally different from Obamacare? It, I would argue it's not a lot different, except that it gives states some options to be able to uh, to opt out of the of that system and structure something more like with what Wisconsin had prior to Obamacare. Would Wisconsin be able to? Here, okay, I'm sorry. Would Wisconsin be able to ex- establish the exact same type of plan we had, the system we had before in our state, which very vigorous, very you know the costs we were maintaining, maintaining our our cost competitiveness. We had lots and lots of products out there you could avail yourself of. You could get a mini plan. You could get a major plan. You know, high risk pools were were fairly affordable. Could Wisconsin just simply opt out entirely and say we're going to go our own way? As I read the the, agree, the proposed language, and like I said, this is just an outline. Wisconsin could come up and say, could say we can make the case that we're going to actually increase the number of people uninsured, keep premiums down by doing what we did. Here's how it is, and there, and then make that proposal there, and that uh, conceivably Tom Price could could give them the waiver to do that. Okay, so the essential benefits, you know, the the schedule of of coverage that you must have, Wisconsin could say, okay, we're going to opt out. 
We're going to go our own way. And then, you know, the products that had disappeared from Wisconsin's marketplace because they were non-conforming to the Obamacare rules potentially come back on and become, you know, available to, to people, particularly folks who are just looking for, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, umbrella coverage that's fairly cheap but gives them access in case they get hit by lightning. Right. That, that's, okay. that's right. Now, <clears throat> they are still keeping the guaranteed issue provision in there. So the things you can get a limited waiver for does not include the guaranteed issue provision, but they're providing that uh, a high-risk pool. It's, it's never clear to me why you would need a standard high-risk pool like what Wisconsin's if you had the guaranteed issue. Right. Ideally, you'd probably go to the limited high-risk, uh, to the invisible high-risk pool. So that's the so the so the answer the the basic answer is probably not Wisconsin probably can't just set up its old version of a high risk pool because of guaranteed issue and that's not something that's going to be available for a waiver. So the Republicans well, they, don't really doesn't doesn't sound like they really want to repeal Obamacare here. Well, I think they want to try to get something that they can pass, and you're, you're dealing with people who don't necessarily understand some of these things. For instance, in the things that that they say you're go- we're going to maintain and then provide uh, waivers for, on one place they say you can't deny coverage due to pre-existing medical condition, and then a little bit later on they say uh, in the same thing, guaranteed issue of coverage for all applicants. It's the same thing. And I don't know that they know that they've actually got a redundant statement in their provision there. So uh, as far as um, the, the two states that have already tried the invisible risk pools, which is risk corridor, um, but, but, you know, maybe not in the same insane level the federal government has, has tried to do that. Um, how has it worked in Maine? How has it worked in Alaska? Both of those states say that they have uh, managed to keep health insurance premiums down significantly, uh, and, and, and you'd expect that if you're funneling money through the back door to the insurers to reduce their uh, total cost in that, they should be able to offer premiums at a lower rate. What, so there couldn't, I mean, isn't, isn't it possible to just simply say, look, everybody's going to be able to buy insurance, but for certain conditions, um, which we would consider to be pre-existing conditions, um, you know, those folks, you, you don't, you, you can't, you're not told you can't buy insurance, but but for coverage for those conditions, you do have to pay an extra premium on that. Or is that just not something that we're, we're just gone? We, we're, in 2017, we didn't even talk like that any longer. Uh, the moderates simply do not want that. They want, they want insurers to accept anyone, everyone, and they want to limit the amount. Of one. In fact, one of the things that they're prohibiting is, the, uh, is what, what Obama called the gender discrimination, where they charge women uh, more than men. But as, as any actuary will tell you, Women get charged more in their younger years, but around 40 or 45, it switches. Men become more expensive than women, and so men get charged more than women in their older years. So insurance told me, you know, if we can keep somebody in the system the whole, the, the whole 40 years or so, then we'll be fine because the, uh, they'll balance out. But uh, it, this, is, this is a political issue, not, a, uh, not an actuarial issue. No, it's just that the actuarial issue is, is completely irrelevant here. Um, you know, the, the question that folks have is, can I, am I going to be able to afford my insurance? Am I going to have to switch my doctor? Am I going to be closed out of networks? Am I going to see my choices limited? That's what they want to go away, I suppose. I mean, are the Republicans operating? It's almost like we're already, we're already doing trade-offs here. Are the Republicans operating on the assumption that their plan will actually and quickly begin to open up innovation and innovative products and lower costs? Because it doesn't sound like it will. 
they are certainly operating under that assumption. But I think that's one of the biggest questions that's unknown. Uh, as one congressman told me, and as I wrote about in Forbes a few weeks ago, uh, no insurers have come up and said, oh, you know, here. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Well, if you just tweak this or that, we're going to, uh, we're going to be able to do this. Insurers have stayed on the sideline and silent. And, uh, and as, as you probably have point, have, uh, know, some of the insurers are increasingly dropping out. Uh, they've stayed out of this discussion, and I don't know that it's entirely clear that insurers will be able to continue operating under the Republican plan, at least the initial Republican plan. Under this plan, they're going to be funneling money to them through the back door, so maybe they stay and maybe they feel like they could probably benefit from that. Which is not to say that that's always going to be the case or that we can continue to afford to do this. Is You know, I guess I'm still I'm going to ask you the same question I asked you a few weeks ago. Why was it so hard to not just, you know, again, blow the dust off a piece of legislation that repealed Obamacare, um, you know, functionally repeal it with a with a two year deadline that says in two years, this bill's gone. It's done. The, the, all of these programs wind down. We have got or whatever. We've got two years. We've got one year to fix this, to give these insurance companies time to, you know, price these products, develop these products. And uh, and that's just something that we're just what is that a pipe dream now? Well, I, <clears throat> I think the answer is that um, they could they did that in 2015 with their repeal that they that they passed through the House and through the Senate, and then Obamacare vetoed in early 2016. And so the notion was all along to move forward with that. However, Tom MacArthur, as I understand it, the head of the moderates in the House, the Republican House, um, stepped up and said, "No, no, no, we've got to do replace at the same time as do as we do repeal that's stupid and Rand Paul from Kentucky, you may recall, uh, called Donald Trump on a cell phone and said, "We can't just do repeal and then later replace. We've got to do them at the same time. Trump agreed with that, so now they had to come up with their replace plan, and that's what they're getting stuck on. House and Senate voted for repeal legislation back in 2015, and it passed, but they can't seem to do it now because they had to put the replace provision in there at the same time, and they weren't ready to do that. These guys want to get thrown out of office in a census year, Merrill. That's what they want. Sort of begging for it, aren't they? It it seems to be the case. Great to have you on the program, as always. Thanks for jumping on the show today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Merrill Matthews, Institute for Policy Innovation. This is, you know, imagine me because you can't see me because it's radio. I'm just shaking my head slowly. Back and forth. We'll be right back. So the Republicans could figure out a way to repeal Obamacare when they couldn't actually repeal Obamacare because Obama would veto it. But now that President Trump is the president, they can't figure out a way to repeal Obamacare. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, So you can't somehow do a repeal and then a two-year deadline to come up with a replacement plan 
you've got to do the replacement plan that damn near nobody actually agrees on and likes in order to not repeal the law. I just want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly, because this isn't actually a repeal and replace. This is a tweak. That's what this is. I mean, repeal it. It's a piece of legislation that says on this date, Obamacare is hereby repealed. And a new piece of legislation at some point before that date is passed. This is not what that is. I'll be right back. The views expressed on the following program are not necessarily the views of WIBA, its management sponsors or staff. Broadcasting live from Planet Madison, where everything is beyond parody. This is the Vicki McKenna Show. To be a part of the program, in Madison, call 321-1310. Statewide, call toll-free at 877-235-1310. Or email vicki at wiba.com. Now, here's Vicki McKenna. So I'm here self-diagnosing. I got the hives. Oh, boy. I got the hives. That's what my cousin called them. Not hives. The hives. Like yeah. the Walmart. The Facebook. The Facebook. The Twitter. The hives. The internet. I'm trying to figure... I was trying to figure out why, if it's hay fever, my skin itches. But it's hives. Oh, boy. Yay! I'm so excited. I'm so just it's it's a, it's a whole new world, a whole new medical world in middle age, man. I'm just telling you, just a, it's a, it's like a it's a new frontier of stuff that never bothered me before suddenly bothering me. I, I just this is great fun, super. All right, I guess I'll look forward to it. You it's know? exciting. I, I've gotten this far without the allergies. Maybe I can get lucky. Moving forward. Yeah, whatever. That's what I thought, too, until about three years ago. And I thought it was just the – I live across the street from this um, community garden. And it's a community flower garden for the oh most boy. part. So it's – I mean, it's pretty. But – and it didn't occur to me. It's like all of this pollen is in the air. You know, why is my nose stuffed up and I'm constantly sneezing? And then, I, you know, you look outside and you go, oh, right, all the flowers – so I think that's what it is. But at the same time, why is it why? I mean, why do I feel like crap right now? I'm not sure. I mean, this is OK. So my, my wife and I went to the Arboretum this weekend. Yes. On Saturday. Yes. And lovely was, place, by the way. Yeah, she was, I mean, putting her nose in the tree that were blossoming, basically. I do. I do that all the time. Yeah. I love flowers. She deals with allergies, though. So, of course, the next day she's all sniffling and everything. I said, well, what did you expect? You were smelling <laughs> the trees. Oh, it's a whole new frontier of, of fun. I tell you, you know, but again, I, I, you know, here's another thing about another upside of middle age. This is a downside. You know, I mean, my hands are erupting in hives, which I assume means my arms are erupting in hives and probably my thighs. And the reason why the fronts of my legs itch is also probably because of hives. Um, the, the, an upside is that you can complain about it more when you're older. Like if I'm in my 20s and complaining about this, people tell you to rub some dirt on it it and just move on, right? 
you know, ah, but you're, you get to be my age. You actually get to complain about these things. And then when I get to be like my mom's age, then you get to just full on spend, you know, the entirety of a conversation with someone talking about your ailments. And I'm kind of looking forward to that, you know, a little bit of license to, you know, you just your whole life. You just don't gripe, tough it out. Don't gripe, don't gripe. Now you can. So I'm kind of embracing it. I'm not going to lie. Kind of like that. You know, hurt my knee. Ow. You just got an instant built in, you know, body of complaint you can now tap into that you never could before. It's great. See, that might be a problem for me because I'm already complaining that I feel old. <laughs> You're not old. I'm not, but I feel like it sometimes. <laughs> it's, oh, my knees this morning. Ow. Oh, yeah, well, you, yeah, my knees. Yeah, but I've had bad knees since my 20s. I just started complaining about it about two, you know what? About two years ago. As a matter of fact, oh, okay. about two years ago, yeah. It was right about when I hit, you know, effective middle age. If you can do the daily double, it's where you reach for your knees, and then, then you got to grab your lower back. Oh, my back too. Oh. Let me think I've done that. Yeah. I probably have. That's, that's going to pro- be my go-to move someday. <laughs> Mine is usually grab the right side of my neck oh. and then, you know, very slowly get out of a chair. Because, you know, just sitting in a chair normally actually makes my knees hurt. But again, it's, it's been a problem since my 20s. It just now... It just now bugs me more. Say, so, you know, there's an upside to all of this. I always like to think that um, that I look at the uh, I look at the glass as half full. Oh. You know, I think I think when people meet me, they think now there's a natural born optimist right there. That Vicky McKenna. That's what people definitely think. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. She is a ray of sunshine. Oh yeah. She always looks on the bright side of things. Always. <laughs> yeah, I can say that that is 100 percent true. Let me tell you. You better believe it is, baby. This is the new – you know what? If you can redefine everything under the sun, you know, if you can make tyranny freedom and, and you know, squelching speech free speech, why can't I make pessimism optimism? Hmm? Hmm? All right. When we come back, um, maybe some optimism. Maybe not. It all depends on what definition I'm feeling. Now, Phil Kirpin will join me to talk about unwinding a regulation that threatens to, well, it threatens to make the internet no better than it is at this very moment and possibly even worse. So if you think that this is fine, you know, then you should probably like the idea of the, of the government regulating the internet like a 1930s era telecom. That's coming up next. We'll be right back. Alrighty, welcome back to the program. <clears throat> I shouldn't clear my throat. I can't. Uh, can't help it. We were just off the air like what, twelve seconds. I know, prior? but it doesn't. I can't. <laughs> it, it's not like you know. I'm going to clear my throat when I don't need to clear my throat, and then I won't clear it when I do. Yeah. What do you want from me? Well, I, you want blood? Do you I, want me to just open up a vein for you here? I want perfection. That's all I'm asking for. Phil Kirpin from the American Commitment is on the phone with me right now to talk about perhaps the end to a really bad idea. I don't know. I'm hopeful. Phil Kirpin, welcome to the program. The end to the bad idea that says a modern, flexible, dynamic, innovative technology like the Internet or the other types of data services, in order to truly thrive and flourish, needs a 1930s-era telecom regulatory scheme applied on top of it. Tell me that's going to go away. 
Yeah, the uh, the big announcement is going to come this week from FCC Chairman Ajit Pai. They're going to announce that they are undoing the uh, 2015 Title II net neutrality order that turned the Internet into a regulated public utility. Uh, the vote on officially beginning the process will be most likely at the FCC's May meeting, so we'll probably get an announcement in the next couple of days. The left will go completely insane, as they are wont to do. And uh, then they'll start that vote, and then there's, there are a few more steps they have to go through in the process. But by the end of this year, uh, that entire regulatory framework should be undone, and we should be back to a uh, lightly regulated, competitive free market Internet like we had for 20 years between the privatization of the Internet in the mid-'90s and the uh, 2015 Obama plan to, to regulate the Internet. How did, so we get, how did we get to the place where people, good people, smart people, could be convinced that the only way they were going to have freedom was to have the government hyper-regulate bandwidth, the pipeline, possibly content, prices, uh, taxes. How did we get to that point where this marvelous little Wild West experiment in in the free exchange of information suddenly suddenly needed the heavy hand of government uh, government regulation to continue? Well, you know, the, uh, the, the liberal advocacy groups that pushed this whole concept got about $190 million from George Soros' Open Society Institute and the Ford Foundation, a few other major liberal foundations. And when you have $190 million, you can convince a lot of people of a lot of things. And in particular, you know, everyone hates Comcast. People don't like the phone companies. And so when you, you're out there and you've got a ton of money and you're pushing this idea of, oh, if government doesn't step in and save us, the evil phone and cable companies are going to block what website you can go to and destroy the Internet. Uh, you, can get, you can get a lot of people bought into that, although I mean, the scare story never really made a whole lot of sense because nobody's been able to explain to me how if the cable company blocked what website you could go to and redirected traffic or what have you, they would keep any of their remaining. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. In customers. I mean, it's like, it would be like the biggest disaster ever, which is why no such thing ever happened in the absence of regulation. But, you know, they had a lot of money and they had uh, the ability to whip people up with lots of scare stories. And, of course, they've got the liberal media and they've got all the tech websites that, for whatever reason, were begging for regulation. And they've got... These big Silicon Valley companies, particularly Google, that uh, stand to benefit by getting regulations to assure that they'll have zero-cost access to downstream bandwidth. And so, you know, you put all the pieces together, and uh, they have a lot of very powerful platforms and a lot of very powerful megaphones and a lot of money, and uh, they were able to bend Obama's ear and get this thing put into effect. And, of course, uh, it's only been in for two years. We haven't really seen the worst of the worst of it yet. I think they were waiting until... After they thought Hillary Clinton was going to win, they were going to start to roll out a lot of the specifics on what this Internet conduct standard means and what's no longer allowed and what the new taxes are going to be to pay for all of the decrease in private investment and so forth. But, uh, you know, I hope we'll never have to see what exactly this was going to lead to because it'll be undone and it'll never come back. Internet conduct standards. Now, two years ago when this first rolled out, the FCC said, you know, we might have the authority to do a bunch of stuff here. Um, and some were suggesting that, that that maybe even overt content manipulation could have been in the works. We will forbear 
our authority. Didn't sound like they were terribly interested in forbearing a lot of that authority, particularly taxation, well, yeah, by the way. Yeah, they uh, they actually they laid the predicate for a vote to to tax uh, broadband internet service, but they didn't actually go ahead and put the tax in because it would have been very politically unpopular before an election. But I fully believe if Hillary had won, we would have had a new 17, 18, 19 percent tax on our internet bill so that they could spend the money where they wanted to spend it politically and subsidize what they wanted to subsidize. And, uh, you know, fortunately, we, we didn't get there. We'll never know if I was right or not, but, but I think I was. Uh, but this internet conduct standard, it's about the vaguest thing ever. And uh, it actually leaves the authority as to who can decide, uh, the authority to decide what types of business relationships are allowed, what products and services are allowed on the Internet. It leaves that authority not even to the commissioners who are appointed by the president, but by the totally unaccountable, unappointed, unelected FCC Enforcement Bureau. And in fact, you know, they've got thousands of complaints that they have not acted on, that they've just sort of allowed to pile up there. Um, and if this rule isn't undone, they'll probably start acting. What are we talking so about in terms of, of of conduct? Is this I'm a you know I'm an IS or I, I'm a I'm a, a service provider. I want to let you have unlimited data. Is that one of the conducts we're talking about here that could potentially be regulated by the FCC? Which, by the way, this is not overt content manipulation. It's 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 sort of you know sideways content manipulation once you start regulating these types of things. But is that what we're talking about? You know, price plans. Yeah, there was a uh, specific complaint filed against T-Mobile for offering uh, sponsored data packages. Like, and it's actually funny. You, remember, you might remember like about a year ago, there was this huge boom of Pokemon Go. Everyone was playing yep. it. There were all these media stories. It was like the biggest thing. Well, T-Mobile offered this product where your, your Pokemon Go usage would not count against your data plan. And uh, they got a complaint filed against them for that, that there was allegedly a net neutrality violation, and how dare they uh, you know, have sponsored data for your Pokemon Go What plan. a great and idea. What a well, great the idea! Was to me, Vicky, the craziest thing. Okay, so the same time T-Mobile is doing that, you had the uh, ranking Democrat, the highest ranking Democrat on the Energy and Commerce Committee, Frank Pallone, actually wrote a letter to all of the wireless carriers saying he was outraged that people were incurring data overage charges from playing Pokemon Go, and how dare they allow that to happen? So you had you had liberal groups saying that it was illegal for T-Mobile not to charge you data overage, and then you had the top Democrat on energy and commerce trying to launch an investigation saying that, that overage charges were outrageous. So it's like, once you invite government in, nobody That's can win. the problem. You can never figure out which you, way they want you, you to go. You just did it in, in one example, in, in, the, in citing both extremes of that one example on Pokemon Go, that's what the Internet Conduct, you know, commission would have been, would have been figuring out, a, I mean, they would have been figuring out a way to tie the internet into a knot because it, I mean, in that particular instance, you can't move in either direction. What do you do in that particular instance? What just tax people so that others can have, you know, everything for free. Yeah. And I mean, that's the, uh, that's the real problem when you have these regulations where you just kind of say, Hey, we don't know what's banned, but you know, we'll let you know when we see it, go ask the enforcement bureau and the impact, you know, people, a lot of people have said to me, well, these rules have been in place almost two years, and I haven't seen anything horrible happen, so, you know, what's the big deal? And actually, we've already seen a big decrease in investment in uh, building out uh, broadband networks in this country. We've seen a huge decline uh, precisely because, you know, these are billion-dollar networks. And how can you raise the money and have a return on capital when you're not sure what's going to be allowed and not allowed, when you're not sure what you're going to be able to do to earn that investment. But don't worry, right? We were, we were supposed to not worry because the government would then build out that broadband, right? Well, that's that's what the, the that, government's that exactly responsibility. 
Well, that was exactly the other shoe that was going to drop, is they were going to say, hey, it's no problem at all that we've scared off private investment. Now we're going to use your tax dollars, and there are going to be strings attached. And, you know, that's the road that this was on. You know, if I think if Hillary Clinton had won the election, we would be pretty far down the road to, you know, a government-owned and controlled Internet, which I think is something the left has wanted for a long time. And instead, uh, we're going to completely undo these Obama regulations, and you are going to see another round of, of uh, you know, whining and crying and gnashing of teeth and outrage from the left and the media and all of that. And it's probably going to start later this week when they announce that they're going to roll this back. And, uh, you know, I would just caution you, your uh, listeners that uh, – Whatever they see on these uh, tech websites will probably just be, you know, liberal fake news lies because uh, they are part and parcel of the left. And uh, this, you know, they, yeah, th- this comes from, um, you know, sort of the mind, the, the the mind of Robert McChesney and George Soros. They, you know, screamed about the media capitalists. They wanted the government monopolists to replace and, and, the flexibility and, the way, and the competition of media capitalists. You know that um, Robert McChesney, the uh, college professor who came up with this whole net neutrality concept as a way to undermine capitalism, um, he's at the University of Illinois now, but do you know where he was when he first came up with this idea? I don't. Madison. Univer- University of Wisconsin. <laughs> oh, sorry. Where else um, would it have this was a guy who made an argument. Where else would it have started? Uh, yes. Right you know what? It could have started in Seattle. Um, <laughs> it, you know, come on. Don't, it could have been a Portland thing. Um, listen, he, he also he's argued that that newspapers and, and you know, um, the press should be funded by the government, that the yeah. government should subsidize all the press. And so then the government would, I guess, have a, a free place to disseminate its press releases. And this was just an exploded version of that, where the government controls access by controlling the pipeline. If they can control the pipeline, then they control the types of content on the pipeline. It was really worrisome for a company like mine. We do, you know, we have a lot of material that we put into the data stream, um, you know, via iHeart, our, our iHeart app and our iHeart services. So, I mean, we, I know that we were standing here going, geez, I wonder what the government's going to do to us. <laughs> and yeah, that was never, course, it's uh, not a good thing to have a little bit of uncertainty. And of course, you know, McChesney also said that there was far greater freedom in Venezuela than in the United States. And uh, I mean, look, these, these people are, these people are maniacs. Uh, they're, uh, he was hard left even for Madison when he was there. Yeah, yeah. Frankly, not, the re- not anymore. frankly the idea that these guys had enough influence to get this regulation passed under obama is extraordinarily frightening his group which by the way the name of his group that he founded is free press which is incredible how they always name everything the opposite of what they want um and uh, that group was cited over 40 times in the obama regulation they're footnoted over 40 times this you know, extremist group that praises Chavez and has all these crazy ideas was founded by an avowed socialist college professor was cited in the official regulations document over 40 times. And so yeah, look, it was you media don't have to take my word for it, what this is all about. I mean, these guys are sometimes pretty, pretty open about what they want. Well, yeah, and the, and, and the idea in the end was not, they, they couldn't get the Fairness Doctrine reimposed back on radio. They couldn't get overt content restrictions and, and, and Cass Sunstein's idea of, you know, the, the, the stoplight, go light idea on content and speech on the Internet. Because it was, it was, it's just too offensive to, to a country like ours that has free speech. So we won't go over, overtly after people's, you know, speech. You just see if we can't backdoor it by essentially making it, you know, the, the function of a federal bureaucracy instead. 
Um, and then we have basically for the internet what the VA has for veterans health care. You know, um, how I, I wonder what could possibly go wrong. Ajit Pai, by the way, the moment he became FCC chairman um, and indicated he was willing to undo this this um, class you know, or whatever Title II classification, o- almost overnight companies started offering unlimited data packages again. Phil, yeah, good point. I noticed that also. And uh, look, I think it's going to be very good for consumers to go back to a competitive free market. I think so too. And, uh, and the left's going to go crazy over the next couple months, so we're going to have to keep uh, punching back at them. Good to, have you, good to have you on the program. And, by the way, AmericanCommitment.org, you should all read Phil's piece. It's probably one of the best, single, easy-to-understand explanations of this somewhat complicated issue that, you, that I've ever seen. So thanks for being on the program, Phil, as always. My pleasure. Have a good one. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the program. So some bright spots in the legislative session, um, the, the Joint Finance Committee stripping out all that awesome policy, <laughs> the budget notwithstanding. Some of it's making its way back in. And in fact, some inventive legislators are actually using this opportunity to also um, motivate uh, the legislature to take up some issues that are long sore spots for consumers in Wisconsin, one of those issues is minimum markup. It's 2017. I don't know why it's rolling a boulder up the backside of a mountain to address minimum markup, but Leah Vukmir, who I believe was the person who introduced the first repeal of minimum markup, um, has got another repeal of minimum markup that she, along with another great person in the legislature, Jim Ott, uh, and some other and some other folks have uh, reintroduced. And I've got Leah on the phone. Leah, are you the first one to introduce the repeal of minimum markup? Oh, no. This oh, is something okay. that's been going on for years. Ever since I got into the legislature, there have been a variety of individuals who have been doing this. Um, in the early days, it was Shirley Krug and Scott Jensen, and I worked on this with Tim Carpenter. And there's always been an interesting bipartisan coalition of legislature legislators. You know, the bill goes back to 1939. I wasn't around then. Um, <laughs> no, neither was but, I. But it really is such an outdated piece of legislation, and it's beyond me that it is still on the books, and it hasn't stopped me from trying every session to try to get rid of it, and I'm back again this session. All right, let me ask this. How many other states have substantially similar laws to Wisconsin on, on forcing, at retail level, a markup of products? We are... Among maybe you can count them on the less than five. I'm yeah, sure. I think it's I think it's I think it's less than five. I didn't know I didn't know the exact number. Yeah. So it's, it's a very small number, and contrary to what many people are saying, you know, the sky isn't going to fall. Other states have repealed this law, and everything has you know gone on just fine. So it's it's just very frustrating that we haven't been able to get this done and we don't give our Wisconsin consumers and quite frankly businesses the opportunity to compete. You know, it is really an anti-competitive piece of legislation. The Federal Trade uh, Commission actually said that it um, is, um, you know, unlike federal antitrust law, the act protects individual competitors, not competition. 
this is like a direct quote from them, it discourages pro-competitive price cutting. And so it's, it's very, it's unfair to consumers. And I argue that it is even unfair to businesses, especially our small businesses right now. People are going to go online and go to Amazon Correct. and purchase something online if they can't get a product, you know, these back-to-school products in particular. We see this every year on Black Friday. There's these ads that go out, and then there's a little asterisk at the bottom. You go to the bottom, and it says, except in the states of, and then the list of three or four states in Wisconsin is included in that. So I argue when people are saying that this hurts our small businesses and our small mom and pops, you know, if we get rid of this, I say keeping it is hurting that. Well, you know, when you have an artificial markup that might add another $50 to the price of a big electronics purchase or something like that, and I can go on on a Black Friday online deal and I can have that product shipped to my door. Um, and I may or may not be required to pull, put, to pay sales taxes at the time of purchase. Um, why wouldn't I do that? You know, why would I? Well, boy, boy, I'm, I'm for Wisconsin. I'm, I'm, I'm Wisconsin heart and soul. I think I'll just go and pay extra money, wait in line, hassle with the crowds. That's, you know, the, the nonsense of this. It completely mm-hmm. ignores a very common behavior in the retail marketplace. Not to mention, you mentioned the small retailers who can't, you know, they're the ones who are supposedly protected here, right? But they're the ones who can't compete on price cutting. The bigger right. retailers, and I've seen it, and you have too, and I won't name names, will say, if you buy, you know, this five, you know, five pound can of coffee, we're going to throw in two pounds of a totally unrelated product, two pounds of meat for free. That's to get around minimum markup. Um, a, right. Another company can't just say, well, I would just like to discount my coffee. So I think I'll discount my coffee because I can't really afford to package it up together with, you know, meat. Uh, or maybe they don't sell it. They're put at a competitive disadvantage because they can actually try to find their way around that law. Right. And that's why what I've been saying, especially this time around, that this is not an issue of big business versus small business or box stores putting small mom and pops out of business. This is about dollars staying in Wisconsin and giving everyone the opportunity to do more with their hard-earned dollars and save money at the checkout. Now, this particular version of the bill, this is not the full repeal, so I have to make sure I let people know that. I'm focused... um, Specifically, uh, that this bill allows below-cost sales of prescription drugs and general merchandise. And you know, we did not deal with the minimum, uh, the the markup, the minimum markup on the products of gasoline, alcohol, and tobacco. Um, as you know, we've been met that's met been met with a lot of resistance in the past. So we decided this time around that we were going to focus on those issues that seem to really haven't. Um, an impact in what we've heard from people on our Wisconsin citizens. And so I'm optimistic that everyone should be on board with this because it really um, is something that will help our small businesses and it will help consumers. Do we have, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing already, but um, do, do we happen to know if there's a list of people registered against this bill? I'm, I haven't looked recently but I'm sure that it will happen again. <laughs> it always seems to. Um, uh, last time I heard, I think the grocers were still going to be opposed to it. I'm not sure if they've registered yet. Well, the grocers but, are the know, ones that can most easily get around it, so I guess they're not as bothered by it. Well, and, you know, it's 
it's just one of those things. You know, you can buy goods online. You can't buy groceries online. Yeah, you can now, uh, though. You can well, in, cer- in certain markets in Wisconsin, Prime Pantry. Yeah, you can. That's uh, true. And, and, and Amazon is making a huge majority, hard play for that. Yeah, and the majority of people don't, but true. you're right. Um, but we were focusing out on the area that seem, would seem to give the most benefit to the vast majority of Wisconsinites, and that's why we're focusing in on the low-cost sales of prescription drugs because, again, this is an area our seniors, they are on fixed incomes. Um, when I talk to them, they're very concerned about their medical issues. I'm going through this with my mom and her health concerns, and the prescription drug um, initiative really has brought, should have broad-based support among Republicans and Democrats. Well, the prescription then, drugs, Leah, in, in Wisconsin, the, the low-cost prescription drug plans, you hear about these all over the place, you know, Walmart, uh, you know, I, I probably like Costco or, or, or some of those uh, larger stores, Kmart, um, were offering low-cost prescription drugs. In Wisconsin, the price was double the right. next day, the double because of our minimum markup. Right. It's absolutely not fair. And in general, I mean, I kind of laugh because it's called the Unfair Sales Act, but it is really unfair right now to small businesses, and it is unfair to citizens, the vast majority of of citizens. And it it forces people um, to forego spending their money in the state of Wisconsin, and that is beyond me. Why we would want those dollars going elsewhere. We should want to keep those dollars in the state of Wisconsin, and this is something that I think is common sense. My colleagues that are, have signed on with me uh, believe that it's common sense, and it's something that I, I hope that we get through this session. Yeah, and every every time it's been introduced, it's been bipartisan, yes? Yes, it has for the most part. We've always had people on both sides of the aisle. I think last session was the only time that it wasn't, and I'm not certain why um, that was the case. I usually have Tim Carpenter on that bill with me. Um, but he wasn't last time around. I'm going to encourage him to get on this time and as well as others, because, again, this, this should not be a partisan issue at all. All right. So are we at the point of, of this is beyond co-sponsorship at this point? Now it's being scheduled for hearings, et cetera? I'm hoping to get a hearing, yes. I'm okay. in the process of trying to get a hearing scheduled. Well, if anyone can do it, Leah. It's you. All right. So, Thank you, Vicky. Uh, you know, hope springs eternal. That's right. I, I mean, you know, every Black Friday we go through this. We have this conversation. So I'm really hopeful that this Black Friday maybe we'll be able to say, guess what? You don't have to have an asterisk at the bottom of the page. Yeah. You can actually go and buy those things right here in Wisconsin. Yep. And you don't have to cross the state line if you want to stock up on a huge number of um, of school supplies. If you happen to live near the Indiana or, you know, or Illinois, not so much. But if you're, you know, if you're rather uh, Minnesota or Iowa, um, you know, you don't have to try to figure out ways to finagle, a, you know, a, a 15% savings in your kids' school supplies. Great to have you on the program. Hope pr- springs eternal. And, you know, maybe this is going to be the year. Thanks, Vicki. You appreciate it. Have a great day. You as well. Bye-bye. we got to take a quick break here. I will be right back to wrap this up. That was State Senator Leah Vukmir. And again, this minimum markup one eliminates the removal of minimum markup for gas. The C stores, they just, they have, they, that's a lobby that's pretty, apparently pretty potent. And for some reason, that was one of the things that always uh, got hung up was, what do you mean? Yeah. You wouldn't let people actually price gas competitively? Oh, yeah, it would be terrible. What a tragedy it would be. I mean, wow. 
The price of gas. Not the gallons, mind you. The gas tax is, is calculated by the gallon. Wisconsin wouldn't have lost one cent in gas taxes. But you, yeah, don't want to have to, don't want to give those gas station operators the ability to, uh, you know, have a day where they have a sale. Um, anyway, I got to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I'd like to thank Katie, Kathy, sorry, Kathy, who says, I'm 75 years old and never had an allergy problem until this year. My eyes itched and water flowed down my face constantly. Nose, cough, wheeze. I was told it was tree allergies. Antihistamines didn't touch it. She said they said because I didn't start them until I had the symptoms. This year, though, I started Claritin a month ago. Now I have itchy eyes and nose, but not the constant waterfall or cough or wheeze. Thank you, Kathy. So that means if I take antihistamines, it's not going to work? Probably. I'm going to try anyway. Um, I just uh, got off, w- w- just finished up with Leah Vukmir. She said that uh, at the prevailing wage hearing, which is also going on simultaneously in the legislature, that there's uh, the opposition is so weak that she actually expects prevailing wage repeal, the second half of prevailing wage repeal, to easily move through the legislature, which I, I've never in my life heard those words come out of a lawmaker's mouth. We expect this to move easily. Now, something could happen, but the union opposition has is not materialized on prevailing wage. Amazing. Um, she said that one of the worst, uh, or, or probably the toughest um, gripe she got in the hearing was uh, someone asking if, you know, if, if the Republicans were interested in saving all of this money, how come the Republicans didn't support a bill to sell the governor's mansion? <laughs> I mean, that's really lame. So it doesn't look like there's much in the way of an argument um, that is being put forth by the left. And I haven't heard advertising. Now, that could change again, but by the left to try to maintain um, the rules on prevailing wage. Repealing prevailing wage, this half of it actually is expected to save Wisconsin up to $300 million annually. Annually. Now, we didn't really know what the exact costs were, but but calculating the cost estimates, um, it could – and I said up to. So there would be some years it's not going to save $300 million, and other years it's going to save uh, more than $300 million perhaps. But up to $300 million annually is the savings. This is at a time when simultaneously Republicans in the legislature, not the Senate Republicans, but some, not all, Assembly Republicans are trying to find a way to create some sort of critical demand for a gas tax and then also find a way to create a critical demand for toll roads when you've got this $300 million you know, anvil hanging over the transportation budget in prevailing wage. So, and I think, so this is what I think. I think the toll road idea goes nowhere. I think the gas tax idea goes nowhere. 
And I think that once prevailing wage is repealed, plus what is necessarily likely to be a pretty significant improvement to Wisconsin's economy, we already shored up our economy in such a way that allowed us to sort of insulate ourselves a bit from some of the, the worst elements of the um, of the recession, the, the lingering elements of the recession that other states were not able to do. Um, but once the, you know, the national economy sort of kicks into high gear and we're expecting to benefit from that, particularly because of our manufacturing base, I think that it's going to be a long day before the folks who are enthusiastically cheerleading a gas tax will be able to make their case. And I think that's what was motivating a lot of these Republicans to sort of, you know, try to get this done before we actually were able to bank the cost savings on some of these serious reforms like prevailing wage reform or do some of the things that Secretary Ross at DOT was was pledging to do uh, after seeing the snapshot audit of some of the corruption at DOT. So this is good news. This is good news. It isn't the um, it isn't the perfect Wisconsin legislative session. Um, but because of some good conservatives, there are some excellent ideas that have moved. They, they look like they're doing well, that they are making their way through committee. Um, I'm optimistic on minimum markup. We'll see about that prevailing wage. I've also been told, and I, this sort of surprised me, that constitutional carry has been scheduled for committee as well, which I honestly thought was going to die without even a single hearing. So there you go. That's a good way to kick off the week. See you tomorrow. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.